Uh, well, it is uh, good to have this opportunity again to open God's Word, and we're going to continue in our study this morning of Paul's letter to Titus and look at the next section in this letter that Paul writes to his uh, fellow ministry companion, Titus, this younger man in the faith whom Paul calls his child in the faith, the one who is a true child in the common faith, Paul says to him in the salutation, a man whom Paul had left on the island of Crete after they had both been involved in evangelistic ministry across the island in the many different villages and towns scattered across that long island in the Mediterranean, Paul had to continue on to other ministry responsibilities, and he leaves Titus there to to finish what Paul was not able to do and to set in order what, Paul says, what still remains. And we've come a, a long way in this letter already. There is a lot that is packed into this letter, both in terms of its theology as well as its very practical instruction. We come now to this last chapter, chapter 3, and we begin now a section. It'll take us a couple weeks to get through it because it is, as well, very densely packed with practical instruction as well as profound theology. We're going to be looking this morning at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, which is part of a a longer paragraph that extends to the end of verse 8. But before we read that text, it's important to understand where Paul is at now in the development of this letter. Uh, He has, in the first part of Titus chapter 1, he has walked us through the qualifications for elders. What was essential in setting up what remained and finishing that work was to establish sound leadership there in the churches scattered across the island. Then in the second half of chapter 1, Paul deals with the challenges that especially necessitate the need for elders, and that is the challenge of false teachers, those who in some way put forward a veneer of Christianity and yet who had twisted the gospel message. Paul deals with that problem in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. And then in chapter 2, throughout the whole chapter, we spent a lot of time there because it is in that chapter where Paul describes the duties for Christians in kind of what we could call a household code, how the believers are to conduct themselves in the households of faith, in the churches scattered throughout that island, how the older men and the older women and the younger men and the younger women, how the slaves were to conduct themselves as members of these congregations. And chapter 2 was particularly focused on that life within the body. When he turns to chapter 3, Paul now gives instructions, very pointed instructions for how the believers are to relate to unbelievers. It really answers the question, how then shall we live? How then shall we live in this world? How shall we live as those who have not been taken from the world, but have been left in the world? How then shall we live? How shall we relate to the unbelievers around us? A very crucial question, and a question 
that the believers, those new believers on the island of Crete needed answered, and it's a question that we continually need to, to answer as well as we consider that same problem for us. How do we live in a world of unbelief, a world that is hostile to the church, that is hostile to the faith, the gospel, that is hostile to our very Christian witness? And there's no question that in our culture today, we are facing increased hostility. And we see that just as one manifestation in the very aggressive, violent, and angry movement known as the transgender movement. All of that is very vivid in our minds these days as we see this playing out in in the media, across the country, and really across the Western world. A very aggressive, hostile movement toward biblical Christianity. Just this past week, I heard from some uh, some news. I heard some news from Canada, where a politician uh, in the province of Ontario, uh, from the city of Toronto, politician named Kristen Wong Tam, who goes by they them pronouns, proposed a law that would criminalize any offensive remarks made within 100 meters of any drag show, including any drag queen story hours for children. In other words, she required or is putting forth a law that would bind the government of Ontario to prosecute anyone, even parents of children, who made any negative comment about drag queens or drag queen story hour for children, And this zone that would be created would be 100 meters around the event, so a football field size perimeter around any such event. And as I said, anyone, including parents, who uttered a remark that was considered derogatory or offensive to the drag queens would be prosecuted and would face a $25,000 fine. Now that is... Uh, what is going on in Canada and is bound to come this way uh, as well. And that's just one evidence of the increasing hostility that uh, we as believers who hold fast the faithful message uh, are facing as as we live in this world. And that leads to two two extremes in, in terms of a response. One extreme is kind of a fatalism, a kind of a a fatalistic surrender, a retreat where we go into isolation, where we essentially cut ourselves off completely from the world, have absolutely no interactions with the world, seek to create kind of our own communes, our own communities with very little, if any, interaction with the unbelieving world. That's one extreme. And as we're going to see from Paul, that's not an option. The other extreme, and one that we certainly see is on the rise even among professing Christians, is an extreme that's, that's equally as aggressive and to some extent equally as hostile and retaliatory to the likes of those who are proposing these kinds of laws and, and promoting this kind, of, uh, this kind of depraved behavior. We see coming, especially in social media, increased rhetoric from Christians at least professing Christians, who are spewing all kinds of hatred toward those like this politician 
and the others who stood with her, including as she made this law, there was a witch, there was a drag queen, a member of the homosexual community, and a whole bunch of other uh, kinds of people that we find Christians today lobbing a lot of hateful speech and accusations and, and very violent threats even toward such people. How do we respond? How do we live in this? We must recognize that our generation, what we are living in today, is not the first generation to face this kind of hostility. And we need to increasingly remind ourselves as the pressure is turned up and the heat rises that God's Word has given us instruction as to how to respond to a life, uh, to, to a world that is hostile to the Christian message. Even Jesus himself told us what to expect. And he wasn't merely talking about the 21st century and Western civilization. He was talking specifically and, and immediately about the context that his own disciples would face after his death, resurrection, and ascension. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus in John 17 says this, as he prays to the Father, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now notice what Jesus prays. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. As I said, our generation is not the first to encounter this kind of hostility. The earliest Christians faced it as well, and they, as we, must ask the question, how then shall we live? And we must look to the Scriptures for the answer to that, and Paul gives us a beautiful response to that in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Now, just by way of review, we're not going to get through this section because, as I said, there is a lot of profound theology, especially as we get into verses 4 through 7. But let me give you an initial overview of this paragraph as we start our study of it. In response to the question, which undoubtedly the Cretans were asking, those newly converted Cretans, Wondering how to live in a world that was hostile to them, Paul gives them this instruction in this paragraph. He begins in verses 1 and 2 with the the practical instructions. These two verses provide us with the essential rule that is to guide our lives as we interact with those of the world. Then in verses 3 to 7, he will provide the theological motivations for this. And this is very important. This isn't just some kind of cultural, limited instruction that Paul gives that was only applicable to the Cretans in AD 64. No, he buttresses these practical instructions with these eternal transcendent theological motivations. And we're going to find those in verses 3 to 7. And then... As we get into that particular part of the paragraph, we'll look particularly at universal depravity and sovereign grace. And then he's going to close out this paragraph with another statement in verse 8, providing 
even more justification as he provides some rational foundations to this instruction. Let's look this morning at verses 1 to 3. We're going to just start into this paragraph and look at verses 1 to 3. We're going to look at these practical instructions and then just start into the theological uh, foundations to this instruction. The Apostle Paul writes this to Titus, "...remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient." To be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another." As we look at those three verses this morning, we're going to organize our thoughts around these two ideas that we draw from the text. First of all, we're going to see in verses 1 and 2, the Christian's high calling. The Christian's high calling, verses 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul is going to set forth the practical instructions for how to live in this world. And then secondly, as he gets into the theological foundations, we're going to look at the Christian's humbling past in verse 3. Very, it's a very, very important foundation to these instructions, and as we get into it, we're going to see why it is so crucial for us to meditate upon that reality of verse 3. But let's start with the Christian's high calling. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, contain the instructions, and notice first of all, Paul's, Paul begins with this, this command to Titus. He commands Titus, the one to whom he writes, he says, remind them. And that that imperative to remind indicates a very important uh, truth that we must remember as, as we get into these instructions. These instructions are not going to be given to Titus and through Titus to the Cretans for the first time. They had already been given, and this is important to note because it shows us that even in the Apostle Paul's evangelistic ministry, as he saw men and women come to faith, even at the earliest stages, part of his initial instruction of the disciples was to instruct them in these ethical imperatives. In other words, we we see that Paul's ministry time in Crete was cut short. He had to move on for some reason, leaving Titus with the responsibility of continuing on the work and setting up what remains. But one of the things that Paul had already done, one of those things was to instruct the new believers about how they were to interact with the unbelievers around them. These imperatives, these instructions that we find were part of Paul's initial preaching. And he says, remind them. The pronoun there refers to the the people that Paul has had in mind when he addressed them back in chapter 2, verses 2 to 10. Remember, the the older men, the older women, the younger women, the the, the younger men, and then the slaves. He's addressing specifically believers, those who are members of the household of faith. In fact, he's going to refer to them 
in just a a few more verses, in verse 5, as the saved. These are not people in general. This is not a kind of moral instruction for society in general. This is reserved for the saved. He calls them that in verse 5, those who have been saved. That's who the them refers to. They are those who, in verse 7, Paul calls the justified ones. In verse 7, he calls them the ones who have been made heirs of eternal life. They are the ones, in verse 8, who have believed God. These instructions are for them. Now, as we look further, we we see as this, this set of instructions begins, we see he first looks at how they were to relate to governing authorities. We're going to see that in the first half of verse 1. If you look at the text, you're going to see that in the first half of verse 1 where where Paul refers to governing authorities, but then he's going to transition at the end of verse 1 to talk about all those in society in general. But let's look first at these instructions, the Christian's high calling as it relates to governing officials. It's interesting how he begins uh, these instructions. It's actually a very unusual sentence in the Greek. It's it's, it's grammatically unusual in that it reads literally this way. Paul says, remind them to rulers, to authorities, submit, obey. To rulers, to authorities, to submit, obey. And, and he states this in a very staccato-like fashion in order to emphasize something. Any kind of grammatical irregularities is always typically for the sake of, of, of emphasis. And Paul does that here to emphasize this is not just a suggestion. This is serious counsel. And so he says, first of all, to rulers and to authorities... And they were two terms that Paul uses here, as, as well as elsewhere, Romans 13 in particular, to refer to the various kinds of governing officials that were present in that day as part of the Roman Empire. There were all kinds of administrative levels. There was various kinds of local and, and regional, and, and then obviously all the way extending all the way up to the emperor himself. There were various forms of of governing authorities. And so to emphasize that this is a command that relates to all governing authorities, Paul uses two of these synonymous terms to to refer to the different classes. And he he calls on Titus to remind the Cretan Christians to be subject to these different levels of authority. The, The verb there, to be subject, means to place oneself in a submissive relationship. It has the idea of of voluntarily submitting oneself to the will of another. It refers, moreover, in the grammar of this text, it refers to a a kind of lifestyle. This is not just something that is done occasionally. This is something Paul expects of them as a habit of life. And this was Paul's understanding of authority. He did not believe that authority and authority structure was in itself evil. In fact, he's used this same verb back in 2 verse 5 to describe the kind of attitude that younger women were to have to their husbands, as well as in chapter 2 verse 9, 
for how slaves were to submit to their masters. Paul understands that there is authority structure, and wherever one finds himself or herself in that structure, they are to have a certain kind of attitude toward authority itself. We find this in a much expanded form in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Let me read you a few of the verses found in that chapter. There, as Paul writes to the Romans, he says this, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And then he goes on to say this. He says, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Now, April 15th is typically tax day, but uh, because it rained here this summer, you know, the the government postponed tax season for, what, six months? Uh, Until fire season, and we can only hope that in fire season, they'll postpone it another six months, and then we don't have to pay our taxes. I don't know, something like that. But, but Paul is saying, you, you must pay taxes to whom taxes is due. Follow the, the established rules that are there. And this is not unique to Paul. We could also look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to, to 17, where the same language is used, now not by a Roman citizen like Paul, but someone as, as lowly, a fisherman from Galilee named Peter, who states the same thing. And not only does Paul call upon them to be subject to rulers, to submit themselves to rulers and authorities, but also to be obedient. And this was an even stronger term than the previous. It, it literally means to obey to follow through, and it would have, especially there in Crete, referred to several things, the different kinds of local commands, the the various laws that were in place, especially taxation, and so on and so forth. And considering the fact that the Cretans were known for their their, their lawlessness, the the Cretans were known for their insolence and, and rebellion, they were known for harboring pirates. I mean, talk about uh, the, the most independent, rebellious class of humanity. They're pirates. And Paul calls upon these Cretans with that kind of background to be submissive to rulers and to be obedient to them. Now, what Paul is focused on here is, is not trying to deal with all the exceptions. Immediately, the question is asked, well, Is this an absolute command? And we would temper that with, no, Paul is not seeking to give an absolute command that must be placed, uh, that that must be applied in every place, every situation, no matter what. Paul is not talking about the exceptions here. He's talking about the rule because 
in general, we must see it in our own flesh, in general, our fleshly attitude is to resist authority wherever we find it. Our biggest problem is not trying to figure out those exceptions. Our biggest problem is is the root of learning submission to authority. And so Paul deals with that here. That is what was needed. But certainly, we can acknowledge the fact that Scripture does not call us to absolute, blind, complete loyalty to governing officials. Just like we would say that to the young wife, to her husband, if the husband was calling upon her, demanding her to engage in some kind of sinful activity, we would say to the young wife, you are in no way obligated in any sense, nor should you submit to that kind of sinful behavior. Paul is not talking about those exceptions here, but we can mention them. We see them, for example, these exceptions described for us in a text like Acts 5.29, where Peter and John are commanded by the Sanhedrin to stop preaching Jesus Christ. And Peter utters those very infamous words when he says, we must obey God rather than men. Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, acknowledges the need to submit and do things like pay taxes, but also delineates between spheres of authority. He says this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then he adds this important secondary statement, and to God the things that are God's. Paul, or Jesus recognizes in that context that there is sphere delineation, that Caesar does not have absolute authority over the disciples of Jesus Christ, but he does have authority. Exodus 1 verse 17, if we would look at that text, we, we read that the midwives feared God and so they disobeyed the command given them by Pharaoh that they were to kill the male children born to the Hebrews. You could look at Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their refusal to obey the commands given them, or Daniel and Daniel chapter 6. I like how one commentator puts this. He says this with respect to Paul's instruction in Titus 3. He says, Paul is not blindly ordering Titus to enforce lockstep adherence to civil rule no matter what. He is confirming that under conditions like those in Crete at the time, Christians should be exemplary subjects, even in pagan social order. The special grace they have received in Christ should enhance and not curtail their cooperation with the common grace of human government to the extent this is possible. And you can understand what the Cretans were facing. They had been saved out of that riffraff, the riffraff of, uh, uh, that was represented in the government and in the culture at large. They'd been saved out of that, been given brand new lives, and were living now according to a totally different life. It would be very difficult for them in that initial context, and we ourselves face this as well, to have any kind of respect to those in government who live pagan and depraved lives. It's very easy to turn our noses up and scorn them, slander them, 
and essentially say, I am not listening to you no matter what. That was the chief problem, and Paul calls upon the Cretans to avoid and abandon that kind of response and instead to submit themselves and obey their governing authorities. Just one more thing about this. If there's any question about whether this is absolute or not, just look at Paul's own end to his life. He died from the sword of Caesar for his refusal to profess Caesar as Lord. I like what Samuel Nagua says of Paul's own life as it relates to this, this command. He said this, Paul himself would demonstrate by his death that when the state stands in opposition to God, it becomes time to obey God and not humans. Now let's continue. Not only does Paul give those instructions, those practical instructions to the Cretans for how they are to relate to governing authorities, he also now turns to instructions related to their interaction with and their attitude toward the unbelievers in society. In fact, he's going to give a series of commands here, and we'll go through these quickly, that that give the Christians a high calling for how they ought to live, how they must live in society at large, in a context where their neighbors do not fear Christ. First of all, Paul calls upon them to be ready for every good deed. Now, Paul in general emphasizes in his writings, such as in Ephesians 2 verse 10, that we are, that the Christian is God's workmanship created specifically for good works. We see back in Titus 1 verse 16, where we read of the unbelievers, the false teachers, who made profession to know God, but they were incapable of producing good deeds. Paul says they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deeds. Indeed, Christians have been created for that. We have been created as instruments, as you could call it, manufacturing of good deeds for the production of good works. That is one of the reasons for which we have been redeemed. And Paul calls upon Christians here to be ready for every good deed in society at large. He calls upon them to be ready for every good deed. Notice this, not just in terms of their relationship to one another. Sometimes when we think of good deeds, we think almost exclusively in terms of ministry, in terms of the one another's that are to take place within the body of Christ. But Paul's Paul's expectation here is much broader than that. No, these good deeds are to be produced for the benefit even of pagans. We are to be ready for good deeds. And and not only are we to be ready for good deeds to those who might have some kind of claim upon them, we we can kind of understand it if it's a family member, even an unbeliever or a friend, someone you know closely who's an unbeliever, we are to be ready for good deeds. But Paul is giving a, a very broad expectation here and is saying that Christians must be ready for this must be eager, vigilant, and and determined to produce good deeds for the benefit of society at large. He continues. He then says that they are to malign no one. 
Now he moves to speech. And the verb that's used here is actually the same verb that we translate elsewhere as to blaspheme. It means to speak in a disrespectful way that demeans, denigrates, and maligns. And that kind of speech could be either directly to someone or behind that person's back. Now, of course, Paul isn't calling upon believers to be silent about evil. He's not calling upon believers to refuse to evaluate moral claims or truth claims made by the unbelievers around them. He's not calling upon them to be silent, to be naive, to be passive, but he is calling upon believers to watch out how they speak of unbelievers, specifically to be very careful not to slander them, even in their discussion and evaluation of what the unbelievers are saying and doing. Calvin put it well. Calvin said, not that Paul wishes them, the Cretans, to condone or approve of the faults of ungodly men. Instead, he is condemning only the propensity to slander. And I would say this, this is one of the areas where where Christians can be particularly at fault as they describe the actions and the views of unbelieving government officials, and even neighbors. It can be very easy to justify slander by simply saying, well, we're saved, and and look at how lost and how dirty they are. And the language then just continues to decrease from there. Paul says no. No matter what they've done, no matter how they act, no matter what they say, you are not to malign them. You are not to engage In slander, he continues, he says they must be peaceable. Literally, this means to be averse from fighting. It's the exact opposite of of aggression, either physically or even in terms of, of heated dispute. Paul says that the Christians, as they interact with the world, are to be peaceable people. They're they're to be known as a people of peace, not looking for every little thing in which to argue and to fight, whether that be just verbally or even in physical combat. This kind of peaceableness is, is, is a fruit of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit produces in the life of a regenerate person. After all, Paul himself says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that, that the Lord's slave cannot be quarrelsome. And if we go back to the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 20, verse 3, we see this, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. And there's a lot to say about how we interact with unbelievers, whether that be at the workplace or in any kind of context where we interact and we discuss what's going on in society uh, around us, that we are not to be known as those who are, who are aggressive and angry and, and ready to fight at, at the drop of a hat. Later on, in Titus 3 verse 9, Paul is going to use the opposite form of the word when he's going to say, avoid disputes, avoid fighting. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says this, this is what is to be the Christian's ambition. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. He continues, 
He moves to the next quality that is essential for interaction with unbelievers. This is what is to be put on as we interact with them. It's the spirit of gentleness. And this word gentle is a very powerful term. It essentially means this, not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. It's the idea of not insisting on the most minute details of our rights. It's the very opposite of what we would say would be severity, brutality, or or harshness. Again, Calvin can be quoted here on this. He says this, the gentle one, quote, knows how to bear injuries with a gentle and moderate disposition, who forgives much, who passes by insults, who neither makes himself be dreaded through harsh severity, nor exacts with full rigor. Philippians 4 verse 5, Paul says elsewhere this, he says, let your gentleness, same word, let your gentleness be known to all men, not just to Christians, but to all. That is to be your reputation, whether in the workplace, in your neighborhood, on the freeway, your, and that's convicting, I know. Um, Paul didn't, Paul didn't know about the 405 or the five freeways, but I, I think that's the trajectory of where he's going with this. But let your gentleness be known to all men. That is to be a chief quality by which even those who hate us most know that we are a gentle people. Augustine summarized it well as well when he said this, as severity is ready to punish faults which it may discover, So charity or gentleness is reluctant to discover the faults which it must punish. Let me say that again. As severity is ready to punish faults which it may discover, so charity, the opposite of severity, gentleness, is even reluctant to discover the faults which must be punished. And you think of that in terms of your relationship with unbelievers. You can have a severe kind of relationship in which you are quick to find out their faults and bring down the law upon them. But gentleness says, you know what? You try not to to uncover. You try not to focus on. You're not eager to pounce with their imperfections. That's gentleness. He continues with this final quality when he says this, showing every consideration for every for all men consideration here is is a, is another very powerful term in fact it's very difficult to translate some translate it like the nasby as consideration the kjv translates it as meekness the esv perfect courtesy the christian standard bible gentleness It has the idea of not being overly impressed with one's self-importance. Not being impressed by that. Not being wowed by yourself. And making sure that others know that. Especially unbelievers. That you don't take yourself too seriously. You have a considerateness in that you actually prefer others. You defer to them. He says every consideration 
He's emphasizing here that there should not be partiality, but there should be full consideration, and it is for all men impartially without reserving it to those who deserve it, such as Christians, or those who have a right to expect it, such as family and friends. It is to all men. Indeed, this is a very convicting list of qualities that Paul expects from these believers. And notice, Paul doesn't hold back. These are, these are new believers who have been saved from a very depraved culture. And he holds up this high standard. So in summary, this is the high calling. With respect to the government, there, we are to take upon ourselves an attitude of submissiveness an attitude of obedience, and in relation to those in society, we are to bring benefit, we are to refuse slander, we are to resist quarreling, we are to forgive quickly, and we are to show deference. This is how Paul calls upon the Christians to live rightly in an unbelieving world. Now, you read this and and you would say, yeah, but who deserves this? How, how can we possibly implement these things? And remember, the Cretans, who had been saved recently, had already had their lives changed. The grace of God had instructed them to deny godliness, ungodliness, and to pursue godliness. And so it'd be very easy for them to, to think, why am I supposed to treat these other people who are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, why am I to treat them in this way, with this high virtue? They don't deserve it. They don't merit this. So why is this necessary? And Paul anticipates such a response, and we see it unfold beginning in verse 3 as he gets into the theological foundations. We're going to start in this section and and begin in, in highlighting something very, very important. Paul f- brings them to a point of humility. He He has a very profound sentence. It's actually made up of some very common words. But these common words express something very, very profound. He, he says this. Notice it at the beginning of verse 3 as, as Paul gets into the Christian's humbling past. He says, for we also once were ourselves. Think of that. For we also once were ourselves. He begins with that conjunction for, to ward off any resistance, Paul provides now a a theological motivation, an explanation for why such virtue was necessary. And he continues, and he says, we ourselves. He says, now look at yourself for just a moment. And and the way that he expresses this is very emphatic, we ourselves. And, And it's not just you, yourselves. Notice what Paul is doing here. He even is including himself. And Titus, we ourselves, he, 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 he includes them together with these Cretans who once were evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and liars. We ourselves, and then he says this, also, and, and by saying this word also, he, he introduces the concept of comparison, and by using also, he shows that in looking at that comparison, there's really no distinctions. 
Instead, as you look at the comparison between we and them, we also shows that there is so much common here, so much in common. And then he says these powerful words. He says, we once were. Paul points back here to the historical reality that is true of every believer that is so very important to remember as you interact with unbelievers. This is key. If you don't catch this, you will struggle with the implementation of this high calling. You will wonder, why is it necessary? And you will be prone in many cases on the spot in kind of this circumstantial decision-making, you'll determine when it's convenient to be this way and when it's not. And yet such situational decision-making, such situational ethics is, is not a place because Paul points back to some historical yet transcendent realities related to who we once were. That always is going to help us in this. In any moment of struggle, whether it is with an IRS agent or a police officer, or a neighbor down the street, or a neighbor next door, or a co-worker who is, is just extremely difficult to be around. So very important in that moment to look back to what we once were and to realize that when we look back, what we once were is no different than what they are now. Charles Spurgeon even puts it this way. He says, The best definition of humility I ever heard was this, to think rightly of ourselves. And the emphasis here on rightly, not just to think of ourselves, because that's easy to do, but to think rightly of ourselves, particularly of our origin, of what we once were. That's hard to do, but... When we think rightly about ourselves, particularly as it relates to our past, what we were saved from, what we were totally unable to change in our lives, when we, when we remember that, it changes how we relate to others. And, and this is going to be Paul's important theme as, as he goes from verse 3 into then verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. He's going to show that the salvation that we enjoy The new lives that we enjoy have nothing to do with our own abilities. It's not we who have saved us, who have saved ourselves from being evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and liars. No, it's only the grace of God. And when we look at what we are responsible for, there is no difference between that and what the unbelievers are doing in the world today. Now let's look at some of the ways that Paul describes what we once were. He gives us seven reminders. We won't get to them all today, but we'll look at a couple of them. Seven reminders of our past depravity. And it is important as we go through this list, so very important, that we don't just think of this in abstract terms. This is what we were before the kindness and love of God appeared and saved us. This is what we once were, number one, foolish. The term refers here to, in general, to being unintelligent and dim-witted. But here, Paul is using it not just in some kind of low IQ. He's, He's referring here to us with respect to the things that matter most. We 
were unintelligent and dim-witted with respect to spiritual things. We were, we were stupid, you could say. We were stupid. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 22 says this, speaking of the unbeliever, speaking of what we once were. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened, and professing to be wise, they became fools. Or Ephesians 4, verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, referring to unbelievers. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. We have to start here. And as we so often are apt to do, to look at the world and to say what? They are fools. And they are. And we know that because we used to be there. That once marked us. We were just as foolish. We were just as spiritually dim-witted, unintelligent, unable to see and accept and understand the things of God. That's who we once were. Second, he says, we were once disobedient. Again, when we look at the unbelieving world and we see the the depravity that is out there, so striking, so vivid, and in our faces, so much so you can hardly drive down the freeway without seeing it everywhere. You can hardly drive down city streets without seeing it. The disobedience to God's law, the the rebellion against it, and yet Paul says, you know what, looking at my own life, Titus looking at your life, Cretans looking at your lives, you were once disobedient. Thirdly, he says they were deceived. Deceived, they were led astray. In fact, the verb here comes from the the, the Greek verb from which we get the word planets. And it was known that in those days that, that maritimers, the, those who captained ships, if they were navigating at night, they would have to be sure that they looked at the stars and not the planets. And if they would, they would guide their boats according to the planets, which were moving in, in orbit, they, they would be led astray. It was the planets, or, or the stars, excuse me, that would give them the, the right orientation. And so that word planeo from planets led to this idea of being led astray. And Paul says, we were led astray. As Isaiah 53 verse 6 so well says, we all, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Sheep are so easily misled. And Paul says, we were once like that. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We're going to continue this list next week, but I just want to close with a a reminder of, of the importance of recognizing where we once were. You've probably heard the statement, but for the grace of God, there go I. Now, where did that come from? Obviously, lots of biblical foundation for that, but in the English language, it is said that the English reformer, John Bradford, who was imprisoned for alleged crimes against Queen Mary I and later burned at the stake on the 1st of July, 1555, 
that once when, when John Bradford was, was, was walking about in the city, he saw a criminal being led away to his execution. And rather than look with scorn upon that criminal, John Bradford put his hand on his heart and looked to heaven and said, take away the grace of God. And there goes John Bradford. And what Paul is calling upon the Cretans to do and us to do as well, that when we see the depravity of the culture around us, that what is so very important, what is essential in our understanding of what's going on in our relationship to and our response to is that we must also put the hand on our hearts and before we say or think anything, we look up to God and say, take away the grace of God. And there goes Brad Clausen. Put your name in the place of John Bradford's name. And when you see what is going on in the culture, be reminded that if it were not for the grace of God, you would be doing the exact same thing. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the wisdom of your word that mixes together both this high calling, these very difficult instructions, and yet at the same time, these very powerful motivations. And certainly when we look around at the world today and often even respond in fear of what is going to be coming down the road in just a little little while, we can have un, inappropriate thoughts. We can too quickly condemn and, and arrogantly, arrogantly judge and compare. And while we must be brave and courageous and call sin, sin, and speak out at the same time, Father, give us the humility that we need. Always remind us. That every time we see this depravity on display, it should cause us to pause and to put our hands on our hearts and to say, if it was not for your grace, we'd be doing that very same thing. May you enlarge in us then through that a, a greater love for the grace that has appeared and has saved us. May you increase our humility. May it be manifest to all men. And may you give us love and compassion for those who are living what we once lived, that we would long to see them rescued by the grace that is found only in you. And Father, too, as, as we close our time, we also, again, want to pray for Bella and, and her, uh, uh, her treatments that are coming up uh, in the weeks ahead, uh, what a difficult thing it must be to have to quit a semester and uh, take a, a leave of absence. But we do pray your hand would be upon her as, as she goes back home now to Minnesota. And may you grant healing to her body. And through this all, may she see your hand of sovereignty at work and, and see and, and, and know your goodness to her in ways that she's never known before. We do know ultimately that your ways are always good and we rest in the wonderful 
truth that you are working all of these things to her good in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together here, and we give all of this to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.